Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Well, hello and welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we are happy to welcome you back into that conversation our last two episodes, we have been talking about eternal life. Uh, we have a unique perspective in the restoration of eternal life and where we're all heading in the plan that God has for his children. Um, it seems like growing up, we used that perspective, I think, to use maybe one of our uh, modern Latter-day revelations, and we kind of uh, have taken that uh, perspective and then looked at all of the other scriptures through that lens. And what Corey and I are doing is kind of looking at the story of God and his plan for mankind and bringing us back to him. And we want to look at where that story uh, lives throughout all of the scriptures and then use that perspective to um, look at any modern revelation that has come and see how they coincide and how they come together. And I believe there's a wonderful story here contained in the scriptures, but I also feel like um, maybe the interpretation of that story hasn't always been, um, at least from my perspective, correct. But one thing Corey and I want to make clear to all of our listeners is that we don't want to divide anybody. Uh, we are just opening up the Word, reading the Word, and wanting to know what it says, but also recognizing that um, God is wanting to bring all of us in to be with him in the end. He says that's his work and glory to bring to pass our immortality, immortality and eternal life. And that's what we've been focusing on. Uh, anything to say, Corey? Well, I just, I continually feel like the Book of Mormon is this new book, again, reading it. And it's an ancient book. It's an ancient work of Scripture and and yet the truths are so profound, and often in Scripture we dig deeper trying to understand deep mysteries. And the deep mystery, I think, is to understand how plainly the gospel has been presented in the Book of Mormon. And for me, uh, I'm it's become the lens through which I try to understand all other Scripture. Uh, you know, it came first. Uh, even in even in recent days, I mean, the the Book of Mormon came first before we had other modern revelations, if you will. Uh, to add to that, but trusting what God has told us all along is that this is the word that he gave the Gentile nations so that we would not be misled or deceived because of plain truths that may have been removed from other works of Scripture that came from uh, the house of Judah, you know, as we call the Bible. Uh, but but he was merciful unto us and gave us the word purely from people who had a testimony of Jesus, uh, unlike so many people in Israel who didn't realize all these signs, all these wonders, all these laws of the Old Testament were simply designed to point to Jesus. And when he came to them, they they missed the point and crucified him. But now we have a group of people who wrote their words down. They didn't go through the hands of lots of people before they got to us. And it tells the plain story of salvation and as, as you've shared with me, Mike, you know, off, off record, but maybe it's worth discussing right now, that it gives us an understanding of what the whole story is. 
Yeah. You know, there's a podcast I wanted to share just a little bit because rather than me try to say what I heard, I'm just going to play. This is from the Bible Project, and this is a recent podcast. They're talking about the Gospels. What was interesting to me is what they said about the story, and they're looking at it from a Protestant perspective, and, and they're questioning, have we looked at the story correctly, or has it had its right place? And so we're talking about this story of eternal life and God bringing all of us back to be with him. Let's just uh, listen in, and, and this is going to be about two minutes long, so it is a little lengthy, but listen to what they're saying as they examine um, the Word of God. Main mode that many, especially Protestants, read the Bible in is the lesson for my life approach. The deep level assumption is the Bible is like a moral handbook and each story is giving me a life application lesson that I can apply to my life. And I think the gospel authors, that's not what they're trying to do. Hey, this is John at the Bible Project. This is the final episode in this short series on how to read the gospel. The four books in the New Testament, the gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, Luke, and John, collectively known as the gospels. Now, if you're like me, out of every part of the Bible, these gospels are the easiest to read and the most fun to read. They're all about Jesus, and Jesus is a really inspiring character. We hear his teachings, we see how he interacts with people. And it's easy to draw a conclusion that reading the Gospels is all about trying to figure out how I should live by looking at how Jesus lived. Jesus says to love our neighbors, so should I. Jesus says, bless people who hurt me. Okay, maybe I should do that too. But is there more to the Gospels than just good moral wisdom? Every story is not trying to give you a life application. Every story is making a claim about the identity of Jesus. So the question that I should be asking when I finish each episode of the Gospels is, what's the unique claim about Jesus being made from this episode? So if the Gospels aren't merely trying to inform us of some new moral ethic, what are they trying to tell us? So I took it for granted because when I was introduced to it, yeah, Jesus died. So of course that's what these books are going to be about. It's like, no, it's very careful design. They're tying Jesus' story in as the fulfillment of Hebrew scripture storyline, which is the story of Israel and of all humanity. And then all of them are saying the story leads up to the moment of a Jewish wonder worker's execution. It's a simple point, but that is their main point. So today we conclude our time in the Gospels with some more insights on how each Gospel brings to climax the story of the Hebrew Scriptures in the life of Jesus and His death and His resurrection. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. We see here that um, there is a story and they're bringing out um, the importance of, above all else, that the four Gospels are there. Their purpose is to give us insight in looking into Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection and how that fulfills Scripture. I've just thought, Corey, that maybe through the years that um, we've made different stories within the Restoration uh, rise above and maybe even become the main story, and in doing that have lost sight of the most important story, which is Jesus's death and resurrection and what that means and what that does for my soul. If they're looking at 
as Protestants, they said, just looking at the Bible and saying, hey, have we missed the mark here? Have we turned this into something that um, above and beyond what it was meant for? I think it's good for us also to do that same thing and say, is some of these scriptures we've given, have we maybe taken them and run with them and turned it into a story and then missed maybe what we really should be seeing? You know, that's that's such a good point, Mike. I I agree. And what's What's amazing about the Book of Mormon, especially in light of what you just said, that the story is about Christ. The story is about God's pursuit of us to bring us back to him, and that we've got so much even more beautiful information about Christ and his passionate pursuit for us that we sometimes lose sight of by, by simply mentioning, you know, well, we're really about building the kingdom, and, and, and we sort of feel like, hey, we're on target if we're talking about Zion, and it's like, there, there is no kingdom without the king, and and this point of it all is to restore us to his presence. It's not just to have this place on earth that we said, see to the world, we knew about this, this was, God was coming to the earth. It's, it's more than that. It's his pursuit for anyone who will come to him. Well, I I love the fact, too, that in the Book of Mormon, we, we get these clear understandings that even are, are shared in the Bible, but they aren't explained as well, uh, just simply about the law of Moses and how all this was a type and shadow to point towards Jesus Christ. The Bible says that, but sometimes our understanding of that because of discussions of laws and works and grace and things in the New Testament, it doesn't come across clearly like we get it in the Book of Mormon. As, as the People of the Book of Mormon kept those same laws too, but understanding they pointed towards Christ. Well, in the same vein, we get a clear understanding of eternal life through the Book of Mormon. We we get a clear direction, and we have to be careful. I think that we don't ever put one scripture above another. They're they're all given for our understanding, for our for clarity. And it's important that we see the uh, agreement in all Scripture because for some people, I think if you see, oh, well, this Scripture says it something, and then I see it says something totally opposite in another Scripture, the Scriptures must be wrong. The, we have to back up if we ever take that pursuit. We need to start with our understanding. If we see it says one thing one way and it says something else in a different way, maybe the problem is we don't understand what's being said. And so that's, I think, where we want to go with this. Last time we talked some about from Second uh, Nephi 6, if you're in the RLDS version of the uh, Book of Mormon, and if you're using the LDS, it's going to be Second Nephi around 9. Um, we're, we were talking about this great plan to bring us back into God's presence, and if we were unclean or filthy, we would be filthy still. But if if we came to Jesus and he would wash away the sin, we get restored to his presence and, and not someplace in between. Um, that, that's where we were. Uh, and, and we were, again, kind of talking through how this great plan was set up. And, and, and I love how you know Nephi and Jacob both kind of share in the writing of these later chapters of Second Nephi, but, but how they're continually saying, oh, the greatness of the mercy of our God, the great holiness of our God, the great plan of our God. They they keep emphasizing this is so wonderful that he shared this with us. And we have to realize this is the story. This is the main story of Scripture that that uh, they want us to understand. When we left off last week, we um, 
we were talking about that and redemption and salvation. And then we kind of, I think where we left off, we said, uh, you know, and then things go south or you know, there's an opposition, you know, and where were we at exactly? We were going to talk about what happens if, um, if you're not made clean. Yeah. Uh, the earliest version is second Nephi six verse 57. And I believe in the LDS, that would be second Nephi nine verse 28. Um, so after describing this great plan to bring us back, the scripture does a 180 and it says, oh, that cunning plan of the evil one. And, uh, you know, the fact that if we don't come back to God and have mercy restored, well, we're left unto justice and justice means we're punished for our sin. And so it describes, the Book of Mormon describes part of this plan of the evil one. And I don't know that we need to read every verse per se, but it gives a flavor of what the plan is. And it's, it may seem obvious, but maybe it's not. Again, the, it's not just called the plan of the evil one. It's the cunning plan of the evil one. And he states, um, Oh, the cunning plan of the evil one, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men. So our, our being vain, our, our, our wanting to be puffed up in our pride, our being frail or foolish, and then it starts listing some of these things. When they're learned, they think they are wise, but then they don't listen to the counsel of God. So we set it aside, think we know better, right? So he, he starts pointing out our problems. And these things come from Satan. Hey, you know better. You you understand this. Uh, there's a word in the scriptures that you one acts presumptuously. And that word to presume just means, hey, I, I know. I know what I'm supposed to do, but... But maybe we don't. Maybe we don't know in our in our relationships or our marriage or whatever. This is part of Satan to make us want to believe, hey, I know what, what I'm supposed to do. I, I know the answers here. I don't need to ask God. Uh, but but it continues to just speak to the the rich, those things of the world that cause us to despise uh, people who have less than us or even persecute those. And our hearts become trapped in our treasures, and the treasures become our God. These are the types of things that that become Satan's plan that keep us from the mercy of God. And so the the scripture jumping ahead is that uh, th- this is what I this is where I think this all leads and I um I I'm going to jump ahead to eight, verse 83 in the earliest version. So well, one of my favorite verses actually is two verses behind it. Yeah, let's it. back up to 80. Yeah, let's <laughs> yeah, get right, it back 79, up. Right. Yeah, yeah I'll start, we'll start at 79. So, oh, then, my beloved brethren, come unto the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Remember that his paths are righteousness. Behold, the way for man is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course before him. And the keeper of the gate I love this. The keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. It's like, and, and, and that ties in with the, in the Bible where it says, you know, the, the Lord, the, the one watching over, he watching over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. The, the one who's mm-hmm. guarding the gate to salvation is him himself, the one who died for us. He doesn't have an angel on duty there. He doesn't have a cherubim with a flaming sword. It's him. It's him. And he's the one who lets us in. We were speaking in Sunday school class recently about how it seemed a little unfair that Moses dies 
in the wilderness. He's, he literally, his last act after his speech, which became the book of Deuteronomy to the Israelites before they go over with Joshua into the Jordan, across the Jordan into the, uh, the promised land, Moses climbs up on the mountain and he sees the promised land over there and he dies. And that always seemed a little harsh because it's like, hey, after all this work, he doesn't get to go. But there's some symbolism in this. The symbolism ties in in a beautiful way. Uh, you know, 1,500 years later when Jesus is actually baptized, Jesus is baptized not only in the same river that they cross over to get into the promised land, but if historians have their facts correct, Jesus was baptized at the same point in the river where the Israelites crossed through to get to the promised land. And what that signifies to me is the reason Moses did not proceed into the promised land was because he represented the old covenant in the Mosaic law. The promised land represented salvation in eternity with God, if you will. The only way you got to eternity was through Jesus. That's why he was baptized in the river. He became the barrier. He became the marker. Mm -hmm. You get there through him. This is why the scripture is so beautiful that he is the keeper, the Holy One of Israel, and he employs no servant there. If you want to get to the eternity with God, it's only through Jesus. Now, this isn't suggesting that somehow the Israelites of old really didn't have salvation. They lived under and had to execute those old laws of the Old Testament, the Mosaic laws, and they'll be judged by that too. It's it's God one way or the other, no matter what era in this eternal or, or this uh, this time on earth we, we live in. But Jesus was making the point in his own life, in his own baptism, you have to die in me, just like he was dying in baptism symbolically to to reach that promised land. So let me can I ask you yeah. a question on verse eighty one? And maybe this isn't I don't know if this is the place to get into this, but there's also a scripture in the Bible that talks about uh straight is the way, narrow is the way that leads, and feeder be that find it. This says here, um, the way for man is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course before him. Um in our discussions, and, and to be fair, I believe that uh, people may say that, um, you know, the reason that only a few may ever end up in a, a celestial place, if that's the correct way to interpret um, uh, our teachings on eternal life, is because it, this, this, this kind of speaks to that, that there's a narrow way and that there's going to be few that go in. It, it says many go in at the wide gate, but few go in at the narrow. What do you uh, think about that, Corey? Or is, there, is that a place to get into this now? Or Oh, I think it's always a good time to get into it. Um, we may want to expand on it later. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I like about this verse and what you just read in the Book of Mormon <clears throat> is that word but in there. The way is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course, which is in an interesting perspective. It doesn't just say, hey, narrow is the way and few find it. It's narrow, but it goes straight. And so if you look down it, you'll see where the end is. There's no deviation. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of the beautiful things that the Book of Mormon is already telling us. This isn't a complicated process, and we've made it so complicated. He's like, no, you look down the path, there's one tree at the end of the path, and that's the tree that leads to God. And so the, the, the fact now, the other part of this where you mentioned in the Bible where the way is narrow and few find it, I I think there's a lot to be learned from that in this in this uh, the way of thinking that, you know, to naturally stumble on God's ways, most people don't don't find it naturally. Most people, you know, might want to choose the ways of the world, like in the days of Noah, 
we're, we're told that everyone minus eight people wanted to choose the ways of the world. Eight people found the narrow way in that time of life, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that through the story of time, many, many, many people have gone to the prison house from this mm-hmm. world. And, and I think that's really true. I think that maybe the majority have, I don't, I don't know. I like that because that is true. You said eight souls were saved and yet we do have scripture that, and we'll get into that as we look at the whole story. We do have scriptures that say, but uh, even the ones in the days of Noah that did go to the prison house, that then they came forth and stood at the right hand of God before and, it was all said and done. Exactly. Okay. And, and that's the point. And, and that's, that's where that's going. Yeah. We'll get into that more. Okay. So that's a good, that's a good thing to keep in mind. then uh, when we look at this word uh, narrow, so yeah, yeah. So, so there's no other way except it's by this gate. This is verse 82 and he cannot be deceived for the Lord God is his name and whoso knocketh to him, he will open. That's, that's the beautiful promise. But here's, here's coming back to what we started Within verse 62, it's kind of probably there's a chiasm in here, although I haven't really studied it for that purpose, because it again, it brings it back to the wise, the learned, they that are rich, they that are puffed up in their learning, their wisdom, their riches. Those are those who he despises and save they cast away these things. And this is what I like right here and consider themselves fools before God and come down in the depths of humility he will not open unto them. You know, just think, ponder that for a second. You know, consider themselves fools before God. Now, that's the state they're asking us to consider for our life's attitude towards God. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like uh, verse 67 as well, where it says, again, it says, Well, under the uncircumcised of heart, for a knowledge of their iniquity, a knowledge of their iniquities shall smite them at the last day. Yeah, yeah. And there's that uh, where you're filthy and you're completely aware of your filthiness as opposed to being righteous and uh, and rejoicing in your cleanness. You know, I, I'm reminded of a quote from the um, former justice of the Supreme Court, Anton Scalia, and he said this. This just came to mind as you were speaking God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools, and he has not been disappointed. If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Now, this is a justice of the Supreme Mm. Court speaking to people. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Isn't wow. that something? Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Does that not give you a, a you know a worldview that it's like exactly what the Book of Mormon is saying? Mm-hmm. You know, have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. I mean, that just nails it to me. Wow. Yeah. So, so what he's asking us is to simply say, lay down our pride, and have the courage to say, God, I am a fool. I am utterly foolish. I I don't bring anything to this conversation, mm-hmm. God. I'm I'm totally relying on your mercy. I, and and even, you know, when we think we're wise, that's what the scriptures say. We're we're still fools. Um I I don't know. That to me sums up so well the attitude that God wants us to consider as we approach him. That that we are simply fools before him. 
So continuing, and save we cast these things away and consider themselves fools before God and come down in the depths of humility, he will not open unto them. He, but the things of the wise and the prudent shall be hid from them forever. And that's kind of the summary. I, I think the cunning plan of the evil one is wrapped up in the thought that, hey, he, he wants us to worship our own thoughts, our own works, our own view of the world. And that's all of the carnal heart. That's what the carnal mind does. But that's what we need to be saved from. That's what, that's what he came to save us from. And he realized unless we had a Savior, we would be victims of that, which would separate us from him forever. Mm. It talks in verse 88 about um, at the last day, all men shall be judged of their works um, and that I did witness that I shook my iniquities from my soul. I stand with brightness before him and a rid of your blood. O oh, my beloved brethren, turn away from your sins. Shake off the chains of him that would bind you fast. Come unto the God who is the rock of your salvation Prepare your souls for the glorious day when justice shall be administered unto the righteous, even the day of judgment, that ye may not shrink with awful fear, that you may not remember your awful guilt and perfectness and be constrained to exclaim, Holy are thy judgments, O Lord God Almighty. But I know my guilt, I transgressed thy law, and my transgressions are mine, and the devil hath obtained me that I am a prey to his awful misery." You know, that uh, that part about that you uh, just shared with us about remembering our guilt and perfectness, that's a interesting thought that comes to us a couple different places. Um, we read it earlier, but it's, it's worth backing up to verse 34 in the RLDS version where, again, this it's, it's a parallel. The people in paradise have a, a perfect happiness but the people in who have not uh, had their sin removed washed away will have it says in verse 34 a perfect knowledge of all of our guilt and uncleanness and nakedness and it states that because of this jumping ahead to verse 40 these who go away into everlasting fire prepared for them their torment is a lake of fire and brimstone. In one other place, it says it will be as a lake of fire and brimstone. The whole point is that, again, we don't know what we don't know. And God has said, we have no understanding of how awful the punishment is when you have immortality and your sin is locked into a body now. The guilt, the pain of your life is now trapped in you forever, but there's no suppressing it. It's totally present. And that's this idea that comes out again in the verse that you just shared, Mike, that if we find ourselves in that state, we're either going to have righteousness administered to us or we're going to shrink with fear and we're going to have a perfect knowledge of our guilt. But either way, we're going to exclaim, holy are thy judgments, O Lord God Almighty. It's it's one or the other. Um. If we're going to look at the the whole story, there's some other places to go that also speak of life, um, life after death, eternal life. And I believe 
we were talking before we started that we'd spend some time in Alma today. Is this a good time to go there? Yeah, yeah, let's do. So uh, turning ahead in the story, um, you know, I, I love how these the writers of the Book of Mormon set us up. And, and we haven't read any from Abinadi here, but but these these ideas that are, are brought forth in Nephi and Abinadi, Alma, the, the chapters have they amplify on them so much. There's so much clarity we get. And and one of these happens, and it's in the earliest version of Alma 19. If you're in the LDS, it's about Alma 41. But the the context is when we shared before uh, a couple episodes back, we were talking about how Alma had gone among the Zoramites, and he's uh, praying for his the success and how they want to be comforted only in Christ. And he talks about how other people went with him. Well, some of those people were his sons and he has a son, Corianton. And the 19th chapter is, is a letter to the son who was apparently in the mission field working with Alma at the same time. But the problem with Corianton is he found his comfort, not in Christ. He found his comfort in a harlot apparently. And, and he's, he gets some chastising from his dad in the first part of the story. And now there's a beautiful conclusion to that because <clears throat> you find that his son's opportunity to, to witness wasn't uh, totally uh, removed from him. Uh, he didn't lose his chance just because he stumbled in the end of the chapter he says, okay, now pick yourself up, brush the dust off, so to speak, and get back out there and work for Christ. You know, so that's a beautiful conclusion to that. And I just I just kind of wanted to throw that in there. But in the middle part of this story, almost says to his son, he says, I perceive that your mind has been a little bothered by this life after death thing. So I want to explain this to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can be so thankful that Alan had this conversation with his son and that it was written down because we get a beautiful explanation in in the middle portion of this chapter. It's one chapter in the RLDS version. It's a couple chapters, like 38, 39, 40, 41 in the, in the LDS. But the content tells us some important things to understand about life after death, and that is regarding this word resurrection and restoration. So, so those are kind of two words we're going to help define as we open up some of this uh, content here. Isn't this exciting, Corey? I can't wait to just. This is where the Book of Mormon to me just shines, and um, and just takes. Uh, I like the way that they do this because it's like it's one man speaking to his son, and here he's going to just tell him the way things are, and it's it's not um, it's not a sermon. It's just uh, it's the way it. It's just going to be laid out very methodically and very logically, and I just think that's a great blessing, and it does that over and over in this book, and. Uh, I'm excited to read it again. I know I've read it before, but these are words. This is what's going to happen when we die. This is where we're all headed, and here it are. It's going to logically be a father lovingly telling his son, look, man, I, I get it. You're you're confused or you're worried about this. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, it, it's once, once the son gets corrected for his uh, stumbling— um, He's, he's, he begins by saying this, and I'm starting at uh, uh, the verse 21 in the earliest version. So it's Alma 19, verse 21. Now, my son, I would say somewhat unto you concerning the coming of Christ. Behold, I, and, and again, it's getting back to how you opened us up in this uh, episode, Mike, with this is the story. Let's, let's get the bigger picture. 
He's saying, I want to tell you, son, about the coming of Christ. I say unto you that it is he that surely shall come to take away the sins of the world. He cometh to declare glad tidings of salvation unto his people. And now, my son, this was the ministry unto which you were called. So he's even telling his son, hey, you were supposed to be telling this bigger story. And so to declare these glad tidings to this people, to prepare their minds, or rather that salvation might come unto them, that they might prepare the minds of their children to hear at the time of his coming. Uh, it, it's so important that we understand that our, our children have to see these things, and our, our children have to see the big picture from the beginning. They, the, our children have to understand the bigger purpose of the church. Uh, if not, the church is always just one generation away from extinction. You know, mm-hmm. um, the Israelites were being commanded by uh, by Moses what they were to do and what they were not to do when they were with him, you know, before they crossed over the Jordan. But as, as a friend pointed out to me recently, he said, but the real issue was it was their children who had to understand this because the parents' generation weren't going to be the ones that it was the children who ended up falling away. And how important mm-hmm. it is that our children see the clarity here of this message in at any generation in, in time, it has to be this, this message of salvation and what Christ did for us. And he, and he says, um, you marvel, why are these things being made known? You know, why do we tell these people so long beforehand, you know, so long before Christ is coming. And, and he says, behold, I say unto you is not a soul at this time as precious unto God as a soul will be at the time of his coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This, this message is pertinent to, to this is before, you know, Christ came on the earth, but so uh, just as necessary for people to understand then. Exactly. And so jumping a little bit ahead to verse 28. So here's where he starts explaining some about life after death. And when we're talking about life after death here, just to kind of prepare everyone, he's not talking about eternity so much as what happens? He's rather asking the or answering the question, what happens immediately when someone dies? This is really what this chapter begins to answer. But I, but I want to share this with this idea that when we talk about restoration, again, it's a parallel. We're re- restored to either good or we are not restored to good. And that's been the message, the constant message through all these scriptures. But, but he states in verse 28, Now, my son, here is somewhat more I would say unto thee, for I perceive that thy mind is worried concerning the resurrection of the dead. Behold, I say unto you that there is no resurrection, or in other words, that this mortal does not put on immortality. This corruption, he's again referring to our body, does not put on incorruption until after the coming of Christ. Now, just stopping right there. To set this in context, this conversation between Alma and his son, this this letter that's being written, uh, and it was recorded for our benefit, happened in the the Old Testament times, if you will, B.C. Christ had not come yet. And so one of the things that we can learn from this and also other scriptures is no human became immortal, immortal meaning a, a soul with, a, with a, a body that would live forever, until after that happened with Jesus. So the people that died up to the point in Jesus' ministry until he died on the cross, no one had been uh, resurrected, if you will. Not that they were sleeping in the grave, but it just the souls were separated from, from their body. This 
statement is made because Christ was the first, because he put on immortality, he became immortal, his spirit joined to an immortal body. Then it paved the way for humanity to do that. But none of the people who died before him, even you know Adam on down, they weren't allowed to be uh, become immortal, if you will, first. And that's that's why he's staying, stating this. So when Christ came, that's an important uh, thing to understand. Now, if if you want to just compare this to some scripture we have in the Bible, if we open to the book of Genesis in the inspired version, there's a there's kind of a there's a couple good references, and I'm only going to share one of them, but this is in the inspired version, uh, chapter seven. Enoch's vision, and starting at verse uh, 61, he says, uh, Enoch cried to the Lord, and he sees Jesus on the earth, and he says, when Jesus, the Son of Man, comes on the earth, will the earth rest? I pray thee, show me these things. Because he had been bothered by how even the earth was groaning and mourning under the sin of humanity. And so what he sees, God shows him in the vision Jesus on the cross. So Genesis seven sixty two states, And the Lord said unto Enoch, Look, and he looked, and beheld the Son of Man lifted up on the cross after the manner of men. And he heard a loud voice, and the heavens were veiled, and all the creations of God mourned. The earth groaned, the rocks were rent, and the saints arose and were crowned on the right hand of the Son of Man with crowns of glory." Now, right there, that is a reference back to what we just read in Alma 19.29. This mortal body didn't put on immortality until it happened to Christ first. Enoch seeing the same thing in vision. When Jesus died, then the saints arose and they gained their immortality who had died prior to Christ. But notice, and we're going to go here again probably multiple times, verse 64, as many of the spirits as were in prison came forth and stood on the right hand of God. I mean, what? where? where is the place we want to be if we're the saints or Christians? We want to be on the right hand of God. Right hand, yeah. It, 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 right. And, and so this point is the spirits who were in prison at the same time came forth. And it says, uh, and so it says, and the remainder were reserved in chains of darkness until the judgment of the great day. So some of the spirits who were in prison, even since the time of Noah and before, also came forth. So we've got a lot right there in that. I'm not going to try to you know deconstruct that anymore at this point, but I just want to point out that the Scriptures made it clear that what Jesus was the first to put on immortality. And again, this is what we're talking about. Uh, we're, not, we're not talking about a consigned to eternity at this point. We're talking about what when someone dies, but Jesus had to be resurrected first. So in verse 30, Alma 1930, he bringeth to pass the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus right there makes it possible that any of the dead could be resurrected. And he says, but behold, my son, the resurrection is not yet. Now that's an interesting statement, but let's, let's keep going. Now, I unfold unto you a mystery. Nevertheless, there are many mysteries which are kept, and no one knoweth save God himself. But I show unto you one thing which I have inquired diligently of God that I might know, and that is concerning the resurrection. So Alma's not saying, I'm an expert, but he's saying, hey, I've really asked God to understand this. So this is something important that we can realize. 
this is worthy of our study. Here's an authority. Here's someone who's, who's spent time on their knees trying to get this figured out. And what he explains is, is beautiful. So he continues explaining. He says, okay, so the first thing I need to tell you in verse 33, behold, there is a time appointed that all shall come forth from the dead. And when this time cometh, uh, no one knows, but God knoweth the time which is appointed. Now, whether there shall be one time or a second time or a third time that men come forth from the dead, it mattereth not. So what he's talking about is just like we saw when Jesus was resurrected, he saw people who had also been spirits either in paradise or the prison become resurrected too. And he's saying, could it happen again? Yeah. Could it happen a couple times? Yeah. He said, it really doesn't matter. He said, that's not the point. Just know that the plan is that the spirits and the bodies come back together. When it happens isn't is important. Now we have, I'm going to throw this out here and we're going to, when we open up section 76, this is going to come back. The resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the just is the big resurrection where all the good people come forth. And what happens to them? That's when the millennium begins. That's when the good people who are alive on the earth come forth. And that's when the good people who are in the paradise of God come down from heaven. That's when heaven and earth come together and, and God, capital G, reigns on the earth, right? So this resurrection of the just is coming. And he's going to talk about this, but I'm going to let the cat out of the bag a little, or maybe this will just tease some people if they haven't studied it yet. That's also what section 76 is describing. We have incorrectly said by reading it just a little too quickly that, oh, this is where you go in eternity. But it's describing the resurrection of the just, and it's also describing later the resurrection of the unjust. But I don't want to get too far ahead. Can you imagine uh, Alma's son? I mean, because, again, he's they're not looking backward in time. They're looking forward, and we have all of this knowledge to rely on. From the time I was born, I realized that, you know, Christ had come and died and rose again, and we have the Gospels we read, but— but here he's telling his son that when when you go down to the grave, you know, and he's probably thinking of all of his friends and uncles and brothers and people that they knew that had died and that they put in the ground that they were mm. all going to rise again. Mm. I mean, what a mm. great um, what a great hope, right? When when you're at the beginning of history, looking forward. Wow, you know that's such a good point, Mike. It's such a good perspective because you know, again, we we measure all this with a view of, hey, we've got three books open in front of us, right. each of us in, do right now, in scripture search program, in a scripture search program, right. right? And and so all these things, and yet they didn't maybe have any of this. This may have been the first time he heard this. A great mystery. All he could do was ask God, you right? Know, and and he made this mystery known. So yeah, <laughs> wow. And and you're right. His son just saw aunts and uncles and friends buried, and it's like. Now what you know, yeah. and so gosh, what what a what an amazing thing! Also, that the father was perceptive about the son's concern for this, mm-hmm. you know, because you're right. There there may have been no other scripture they had to turn back to to understand this, and this is this is like new stuff. So wow, wow, that's a really really good observation. And, and you don't want to read too much into it, but you just think about a father's love for his son and knowing you know what makes him tick, and he's thinking you know. What do you think? You can just go run around and do what you want and spend time with this harlot. You got to realize there's going to be a resurrection. This life is not it. And this is what you've got to be telling people that how you spend your time here on the world, what you do, how your heart has changed, how you look forward to this, to this Christ is important. And it's important for this change that's going to allow you to be with him uh, 
for eternity, which is much longer than the few years that we spend here. So, yeah, what a you just have to kind of put yourself there at, at that point in time um, anyway. Yeah, and it's like uh, we've said, you're free to make your choice. You're just not free to choose the consequence of your choice. And that's just kind of mm-hmm. what he's explaining here. So, so he shares that, hey, it's just enough to know that there's a, a time appointed that also rise from the dead. Now, <clears throat> in verse 36, it says, there must be a space between the time of death and the time of resurrection. And I would inquire, what becometh of the souls of men from the time of death unto the time appointed for the resurrection? So he's saying, when someone dies, when we when we have a funeral and that person goes into the ground, what what happens? What's actually going on behind the seeds in the spiritual sense and and perhaps the physical? Now he says in verse, he starts to answer that question: whether there is more than one time appointed for men to rise, it mattereth not. He already stated that. For all do not rise at once, and this mattereth not. All is as one day with God, and time is only measured unto man. So he's he's kind of saying, hey, whether it happens in the future, multiple times it doesn't, it's all God's plan, and really the time part is only our deal. He's bringing back to the resurrection of humanity. And whether we see different pieces of that over time, he said, don't let the time factor bother you. His plan is to bring a spirit and a body back together again. <clears throat> so in 39, therefore there is a time appointed unto men, that they shall rise from the dead. And there is a space between the time of death and the resurrection. So he's just telling the son, hey, when you see him go on the ground, there is some time that goes past before the body and the spirit come together again. But so then he clarifies that now in verse 40. Now concerning this space of time, what becometh of the souls of men is the thing which I have inquired diligently of the Lord to know. And this is the thing which I do know, that when the time cometh, when all shall rise, then shall they know that God knows all the times that are appointed unto man. And now concerning the state of the soul between the death and the resurrection, it's been made known to me by an angel. So here here we get, you know, he's putting the seal of heaven on this uh, statement. He said, Mm -hmm. an angel told me this, that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. Isn't that interesting? So from the beginning, the plan was everyone faces God when you die. You know, you you are going to go before the creator. You are going to see him. He is going to, you know, be this person either you believed in or, and, and followed or you weren't sure about or you openly rejected. But nevertheless, that's what happens to every loved one who we say goodbye to in, in, their, in, their, in their last moment of life. And then, verse 44, it says, Shall it come to pass that the spirits of those which are righteous are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace? where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow, et cetera. And, now, resurrect, and Revelation says that's where this that tree was we talked about, right? In the paradise of our God. Yeah, I talked about that too. And, and Jesus on the cross to the one thief, he said, hey, today you're going to be with me in paradise, right? Mm. Now, now this, again, we're, we're only talking about what happens to someone when they die and what happens to the spirit right now. We're not even going beyond this life or this world. 
Now, the time factor is different in heaven. I, I get all that. But for now, from our perspective, when someone dies, the spirit goes to this paradise world or, now verse 45 gives the opposite, then it shall come to pass that the spirits of the wicked, yea, which are evil, for behold, they have no part nor portion of the spirit of the Lord. For behold, they chose evil works rather than good. Therefore, the spirit of the devil did enter into them and take possession of their house. So see, this is where judgment by works comes in, in that works become the evidence that our heart was changed. Works do not works could not merit salvation. We have no and this is what's so beautiful about the Book of Mormon. It makes it clear that it isn't our works that could have ever got us back into God's presence. Our works are evidence that our heart was changed. And if our heart was changed, then he does the work in us to remove the sin. All we can do is demonstrate being broken and contrite for that, recognizing it. But people who never get to that point, their works show that they chose evil. And and that's ultimately the evidence. So they chose evil works rather than good. The spirits, the spirit of the devil did enter into them and take possession of their house, and these shall be cast out into outer darkness. Well, he sets a huge, huge contrast here. Either you're in paradise or you're in the, this outer darkness, and there's weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth because of their own iniquity, being led captive by the will of the devil. So, so he says, so this is the state of the souls of the wicked, yea, in darkness, a state of awful, fearful, looking for for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God on them, and thus they remain in this state, as well as the righteous in paradise, until the time of their resurrection. So, again, this is why this is the day to repent, because you know even if there's a chance, as we saw in Enoch's account, that the spirits who were in the prison house received judgment and were able to repent, it just sounds terrible. I mean, the weeping, the wailing, the gnashing of teeth uh, comes because of their own iniquity. And so that's, uh, again, the, this condition of the souls when we are departed this body. So in verse 48, he continues, Now there are some that have understood that this state of happiness and the state of misery of the soul before the resurrection was a first resurrection. And he says, I admit it may be termed a resurrection, the raising of the spirit or the soul and their consignation to happiness or misery, according to the words which I've spoken. And behold, it hath been spoken that there is a first resurrection, a a resurrection of all those who have been or which are or which shall be down to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. What What he's about to do is clarify the word or the phrase first resurrection, because he's saying, hey, some people say there's going to be a first resurrection. And he said, and they're talking about this event to come when Jesus dies and is resurrected. Those those souls, hey, they are the first to be resurrected. He said, yeah, he said, that's people call it that. He said, but there's something else. And, and, and he said, so don't confuse the term first resurrection with the ultimate first resurrection. And this is why in verse 51 he states, now we do not suppose that this first resurrection, which has been spoken of in this manner, can be the resurrection of the souls and their consignation to happiness or misery. We can't suppose this is what it means. 
I say unto you, no, but it's just talking about the reuniting of the soul with the body from those days of Adam down to the resurrection of Christ. So in verse 52, he just explained what Enoch saw, the people from Adam down to Christ. And and he takes a couple more verses to explain this. But then in, in later verses, he gets down to what this ultimate first resurrection that is yet to come, I mean, from where we're at in this perspective of time, where it's going to be. And and this is when Christ comes in his glory. That's the main first resurrection, if you will. Um, it's like God didn't make these people who died from Adam on to Christ wait forever to be resurrected, but he's saying there's a there's another event, and that is the ultimate first resurrection, which he's about to explain in the next portion. Okay. So we we have a space after our body goes to the grave, and every man returns immediately to their creator, God. And it says the righteous will go to a state where they have these promises immediately. As soon as your body goes into the ground, your spirit goes, it says there's happiness, there's rest, there's peace. You have no cares and you have no sorrow. And that's described as the paradise of God. The wicked, however, and this is the scariest part to me, it says those that have no part or no portion of the spirit of the Lord they are into the outer darkness, weeping, wailing, um, and they're there until their body is reunited with their spirit as the people in paradise are there until their body reunites with their spirit. Right, right. And so he, he explains this, and he, he mentions it in a couple different ways, but, but he, get, he leads up to this. He says, um, he repeats one more time, verse 56. I say there is a space between death and resurrection of the body and a state of the soul and happiness or misery until the time which is appointed of God that the dead shall come forth and be reunited, body, both soul and body, and be brought to stand before God and be judged according to their works. And so he's he's kind of saying, okay, but then there's this future event we seem to understand where everyone comes and stands before God. Now, this bringeth about the restoration of all those things which have been spoken by the mouths of the prophets. So he's talking about this event ahead. The soul shall be restored to the body and the body to the soul. Every limb and joint be restored to its body, and every hair of their heads shall not be lost, but all things shall be restored to its proper and perfect frame. And now, my son, this is the restoration of which has been spoken by the mouths of the prophets, and then shall the righteous shine forth in the kingdom of God. So, again, he's saying, when you hear the prophets talking about the the resurrection and the restoration, he said, they're talking about this event when the kingdom of God comes to earth, Mm -hmm. and and that's when we're going to shine forth and be with God in his kingdom. He said, but before that, there's this, res- there's this resurrection or restoration of bodies and souls of people who have died before that. Maybe God just said, hey, you've waited long enough. I, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't say I have any insight on that, but it's just that some people were allowed to be resurrected when Christ died but, or rose again from, and rose again. But in the future, the restoration, the resurrection of all souls happens when Christ comes in his glory. And he, he begins to explain this. And he said, and that's what the prophets were always talking about. Okay. I think we're going to have to break there. Um, yeah, and we'll continue on this the next time. Yeah. 
So we are we are talking about this mighty resurrection, this mighty um, plan when um, the kingdom of God uh, comes back to the earth, or Christ comes back, um, and there will be no doubt what's going on at that time. And 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 we're going to see this word restoration, and it's the Book of Mormon explains this in such a beautiful way, and it's going to help us understand restoration a little more when we do get into section seventy six coming up.